Welcome to episode 32 of the Montana Values Podcast. In this show, we'll talk about playing hide the weenie and judicial appointments. Let's get right into it with our host, Tammy Fisher. Tammy, there are a couple of bills floating around the legislature that don't make a whole lot of sense to most of us. In particular, there are bills that seem to want to fix a problem that doesn't actually exist. One bill is SB 140, and it seeks to consolidate the executive branch's authority in Montana. This bill is being proposed by the governor, who is the executive branch, and has been presented by Lieutenant Governor Juris. And it's the governor's policy proposal. This bill says that when an opening in the judicial branch of government, when a judge vacates his or her position, the governor would have direct appointment authority. He could just pluck a lawyer out of the state of Montana and throw him onto the bench. Well, that's how it works in Washington, D.C., but I don't see why we would need more Washington, D.C. and Montana unless there's a problem with how the current process works. And the current process is when a judge position opens prior to an election, a commission made up of non-lawyers, lawyers and judges, receives applications from lawyers to fill the seat. They vet those applications through a fully public process. And then they just give the governors the three most qualified applicants to nominate from or appoint from. And then when the Senate meets again, the Senate confirms the nomination. So why is Montana different from Washington, D.C.? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One, in D.C., the president directly appoints and the Senate confirms. The federal government doesn't have a judicial nomination commission. This is probably because the United States Senate is a full-time gig. They meet year-round, and their confirmation hearings are exhaustive, days-long hearings, and essentially they vet the applicants. The Senate does. Think about the last Supreme Court Senate hearings and how awful they were and in-depth and overtly political. Montana Senate meets once every two years, not year-round, and therefore doesn't have the capacity to vet the governor's judicial appointments because justice can't wait for the Montana Senate to meet before seating a judge. It just can't. But our history is important here because it seems the governor in his proposal and Lieutenant Governor Juris in her promotion of this proposal has failed to consider our history on this issue. And granted, the governor didn't live in Montana when this issue was hotly debated and resolved over a seven-year time period. But Ms. Juris is a Montanan, and more importantly, she's a lawyer who has run for judicial seats on the Supreme Court. So she should know the history, and if she knows it, she should have disclosed that history to the legislature when she presented the proposal. We can't play hide the weenie with our legislative history. We need to be transparent and to allow the legislature to consider why we have the system that we have. So let's look at that history. Before the 1972 Constitutional Convention, discontent with the state's judicial system in general was one of the major motivators behind the call for a whole-scale constitutional revision. That discontent led up to the 1972 Constitutional Convention, where our new Constitution was developed in a bipartisan and meaningful way. The underlying problem with any way you select judges is the problem of influence, which is the fear that the judiciary could be compromised if its selection allowed specific interests like political action groups, governors, legislators, parties to gain control of the selection process. Because we want 
to the most extent possible for the judicial branch to be apolitical, no politics, because you can't have the branch that oversees the actions of the legislative and executive branch to have a political bent. But let's not kid ourselves, folks. Politics finds its way into the judicial branch. Recognizing this, the goal is to have as little political influence on the judicial branch as possible. By the time of the 1972 Constitutional Convention, the big fear with Montana's judicial branch was the influence of the state's big three corporations and employers, the Anaconda Company, BN Railroad, and Montana Power. This fear spurred the debate of appoint versus elect. The movement for judicial reform started in 1966 in Great Falls. 104 citizens met to examine the weaknesses in the state's judicial system. One of the things that was clear was that nonpartisan elections had failed to remove the judicial branch from political influence. That citizen group recommended judges be nominated by a screening board and appointed by the governor and then approved or disapproved by the voters in the next election. They submitted their plan to the Constitutional Convention. And remember, these were 104 citizens. The plan, as written, didn't make a whole lot of progress in the Judiciary Committee meeting, and the committee split 5-4, and it was a heated debate then on the floor. The debate centered on whether Montana should stick with the old way of doing things, where empty positions were filled by election, or if this new Montana-made plan helped minimize the politicization of the judiciary. The delegates didn't agree on a path forward, and even the lawyer delegates were split. There was a line of thinking that appointments versus elections to fill positions created an incumbency bias, that if a judge is appointed, he will automatically be elected when he is then up for popular vote in the next election cycle. But that wasn't true, at least between 1889 and 1977, where only seven of 15 appointees to the Supreme Court who ran for the court following their appointment actually regained their seats. So we here at MVP aren't confident that fear of incumbency bias is a legit concern with respect to utilizing a governor appointment process for judicial vacancies. What we are sure of is judges make decisions that aren't politically popular. And that's precisely what we ask them to do. We want them to make decisions based upon application of the law to the facts, not an activist interpretation or expansion of law to fit an outcome. We want them to be as free from political influence as possible. And this is why judicial political races are so freaking boring. No one knows what judges do. And unless you're practicing law before them or you are a litigant in their courtroom, the general public has no idea how they act in the courtroom or if they're a good judge. They don't seek public endorsement or consensus. They are boring. And that, friends, is by design. We want judges to be boring, especially as conservatives. Boring is good. Follow the law. Don't act outside the bounds of the law. We do not favor judicial activism or policy-oriented decisions because policy is the role of the legislative branch. So getting back to how we got the Judicial Commission, or what we call the Montana Plan, we know that elections are super political, which sucks for the judicial branch because they shouldn't be political at all. Indeed, that's a judicial canon that they must follow. No politics but run for political office to hold office. That's crazy. It's terrible. 
And we all know the corporate influence problems. So straight election is not a great way to seat judges. So to try to limit political influence, the convention delegates finally agreed to a hybrid Montana-made process. A judicial commission comprised of four non-lawyers appointed by the governor, one judge elected by district judges, two attorneys appointed by the Supreme Court. That is a good odd number size commission. And that commission then vets candidates for vacancies. The process is all public. It asks for public comment and is very transparent. The commission gives the governor three applicants to choose from. The governor picks and the Senate confirms at some point. But then the judge must run for election the next time the seat is up for election. The whole process is embedded in our statutes. And it's not a perfect process. I actually wish that we chose all judges by the commission process because they're supposed to be apolitical. So it doesn't make any sense that they have to run a political race to get an apolitical seat. That doesn't make any sense. But if I had my way, we'd have to amend the Constitution and we don't want to do that. But it's important to know the history of how we got the process to determine if the process should in fact change. So when we look at the current proposal to eliminate the Judicial Nomination Commission, First, we got to ask, what part of the current system has failed so horribly that a new system is necessary? Because conservative Republicans are not activists. We exercise restraint. We do not bend with the wind of the day. We hold steady to our Constitution, to existing law, to our founding documents. Because the founding principles remain. When all else is lost, we tether to our principles. In its simplest terms, this is the conservative Montana value of, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So what broke? How has the commission failed us? What judges have been appointed through the commission process that suck? Well, when promoting this bill, Lieutenant Governor Juris didn't define a problem that needs fixing. She didn't tell us how this process failed to procure good judges. And I'll tell you that I personally have found several elected judges to be terrible at their jobs. But by and large, the appointed judges in Montana have been well-received by those of us that are required to work with them. So the vetting by the lay and lawyer commission has been good, at least in my experience. But that's just me. So like all of you, I'm waiting for the data from Lieutenant Governor Juris that tells us The commission sucks at its job and has done a terrible job at vetting judges appointed by the governor, but it hasn't come. She just argues that we need to change because changing to prime rib from Turkey at Thanksgiving can be a nice thing and the governor is committed to appoint good judges. Well, that doesn't work for conservative principled Republicans. Show us the evidence. Show us the data. Show us why we should disregard history, why the struggles of the 60s and 70s in Montana and the monumental bipartisan work on this issue in 1972 should be thrown in the garbage. Where's the beef? If valued and valid public purposes are going unserved or positively disserved by government, the proper response is not to dismantle government, but to repair and reform it in a conservative direction. Lieutenant Governor Juris doesn't even offer a repair for the process, just a whole-scale repeal of the statutes that set up the commission. Conservative Republican principles rest on a reliable process. 
and promises of the great things this governor will do discounts the fact that the law is everlasting. It exceeds one term or two terms of a governor. It doesn't change and shouldn't change based upon the political winds. It must be reliable and it must be difficult to create and to modify because in a sea of chaos, we must rely upon the law. So what this governor promises is not the promise of the next governor. This governor may appoint based upon conservative principles. The next governor may appoint based upon who contributed to his campaign. And what do we do then? Change the law? Hell no. Not if we're conservatives. The law abides. If it were rational to believe that legislators and executives engage in careful constitutional reflection before taking action, we wouldn't have stupid transgender bills and morality-based bills versus constitution-based bills being proposed by the legislative and executive branch. That's why we rely on the law and the constitution and, frankly, the judicial branch to resist activism that flies in the face of the law. The federal constitutional framers' vision of the judiciary was an impenetrable bulwark against every assumption of power by the legislative and executive, and a means of holding the political branches to the Constitution's terms rather than allowing the political branches to treat those terms as perpetually subject to revision. We can't enact laws to suit whoever sits in the governor's chair for as long as he sits there. The laws aren't for him. The laws are for us, for us to rely upon. They are intended to last and to only be amended when the law itself has failed Montana. Consolidating power in the executive branch is terrible public policy, especially when the desire for power does not arise from a failure in current policy. Our founding fathers were deeply concerned about concentration of power, which is why they created a system of checks and balances and the separation of powers. Our founders would have little toleration for politicians who carelessly approach the repeal of laws with no articulable basis other than concentrating power in the hands of a guy that holds the governor's chair. We must, as conservative Republicans, object when anyone including the lieutenant governor or governor, seeks to consolidate power in their branch of government. Because if done so without any articulable purpose, a problem with the existing process, say, the purpose then appears to be self-serving. And self-service is the enemy of public service. Winners of elections are entitled to promote their ideas of good government, but they are not entitled to use government in service of self. The governor has in his hands extraordinary opportunity and equally extraordinary obligation. His obligation is to set self-interest aside for the sake of public good. Without providing reliable data for this proposed change and simply promoting personal preference, he fails to place the public need before his own. And that is precisely what many of us feared would occur under his administration. Our founding fathers knew that power corrupted mortal man. Indeed, the American Revolution was a revolt against centralized power that answered to no one. Our system of checks and balances is designed to control the abuses of government. The principles of limited government, strengthened by institutional checks and balances, cut to the core of what conservatism is supposed to advance. 
Indeed, Drain the Swamp became a direct assault on Washington, D.C. that has consolidated inordinate power in recent decades. Montanans are deeply practical. They're interested in what works. And they want their government to work. Conservatives know how institutions can and should work in our free society. And they can apply that knowledge to government. Conservatives must make the case that they will give Montana a government and therefore a state that they can be proud of. But we can't become unprincipled hypocrites and advocate for overweening executive power just because that is what Gianforte and Juris might want. In Common Sense, Thomas Paine wrote, For as in absolute governments the king is law, so in free countries the law ought to be king. Our Declaration of Independence, inciting evidence of King George's absolute tyranny, referenced his failure to assent to laws and obstruction of the administration of justice. This bill, without any data or evidence suggesting the Judicial Commission has failed to produce qualified good judges for our state, is a solution looking for a problem, risks any credibility the governor has advanced in other policy proposals, is short-sighted, and places the continuation of a conservative legislature at risk. The key to the art of governing is to figure out when government should pull back and when it should engage, and when it engages, precisely how it should do so. In other words, does government have an appropriate role to play in a particular situation? Here, as in so many areas, the proper measure of action by a conservative Republican legislature is prudence. Conservatives must hold true to their principles, not political expediency. If we are to protect the rule of law and the reliability of law, true conservatives must rise up now and say so. This is a bad bill for Montana, and what the governor seems to not realize is this is a bad bill for him. He is squandering his political wins and policy opportunities for what is perceived as a power grab. We are a hard no on Senate Bill 140. Thanks for taking us with you on your journey today, and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Montana Values Podcast. Become a sponsor of the show by going to our website, montanavaluespodcast.com, locating the sponsor page and clicking on the donate button. Subscribe to the show on Podbean or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Parlor. Our handle is at MTValues. What's your favorite Montana value? How do you live it? Write to us. Our email address is montanavaluespodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.